Good morning, everyone. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute. And today, we're really pleased that Ms. Lauren Nassenberger, the Chief Information Officer of the Department of the Air Force, can join us to discuss a critical side of modern warfare, information. Now, by way of introduction, I'd like to explain that Ms. Nassenberger leads two directorates and supports tens of thousands of cyber operations and support personnel around the globe. Her portfolio is valued at over $17 billion. She provides oversight of the Air Force's IT enterprise, which includes everything from investment strategies to networks and cloud computing. She's also responsible for the department's cybersecurity. Perhaps most importantly, she integrates Air Force warfighting and mission support capabilities by networking and securing air, space, and terrestrial assets. So welcome, Lauren, and thanks very much for taking the time to be here today. What I'd like to do is kind of give you the stage, if you will, for a couple of minutes to uh, give us a little bit about a little bit of background on uh, just what you do and your organization. So over to you. All right, sure. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here. Um, it looks like you have an awesome audience out here today as well. And I think I think you covered the intro pretty well. I'll I'll add that um, have two little girls at home uh, and uh, have been at this about about five and a half years. Um, not in this job, but uh, the the Department of the Air Force writ large. Um, and it has been just a real pleasure to work some of the complex problems that we have. Um, you know, I tell folks that have not had the opportunity to serve that. There is no other place where you can find just really wicked hard problems of this magnitude that matter this much with people that are this passionate about getting after it. Um, so, so I love my job and especially love the people that I am working with and looking forward to our discussion this morning. Well, very good. Let's uh, kind of jump right in. And what I'd like to do is start by asking you uh, a little bit about some wider strategic and geopolitical views. Um, for the past decade or so, China and Russia have been talking about becoming more informationalized in their war fighting. Uh, and we also value the role that information plays in warfare. And that's why the services are pursuing concepts like uh, joint all domain command and control. So I, I think I'd like to, and more importantly, the audience would like to hear how you view the elevation of information in warfare and what role you see your office playing in that process. Absolutely. So I would say that information plays an increasing role in everything. Um, and in our personal lives, we, we kind of, it, it just happens naturally. We use information for just about everything. Um, I, I definitely check my commute before I head out in the office. Um, you know, you're looking for the best deal online. Um, a lot of companies make uh, make money by predicting what your what your shopping habits will be, and our intelligence community, of course, has done a, an incredible job for decades, um, probably a century now, uh, doing really great things with information. Um, our adversaries, uh, namely China and Russia, of course, have written more about this as have we about the role of informationized warfare um, and have made big investments. And, and I'll share some of those things, they think about it a lot like we do. Um, offensive cyber operations, how can you disrupt something uh, in completely using assets in the digital domain, sometimes only having a digital domain effect, uh, shutting down a network, sometimes having a kinetic effect. Um, you know, if you, if you shut down something in an HVAC unit, there are things that can happen, for instance, in the real world as a result of that digital effect. Um, you can get information from other networks through offensive means. Defensive cyber operations where you are defending against um, things that others are doing. Um, maybe you're defending against the effects of latent malware uh, in your networks. And then of course, uh, your network operations um, and your cybersecurity. All of, the, all of the systematic things that you do, um, you're knocking your sock um, to look across your network. And a lot of those things um, do fall into my purview or the purview of the A26. And we work very, very um, in an aligned manner um, with our 16th Air Force commander, who is in charge of the operational side of all of these things, um, to be as orchestrated as possible um, and to drive things in a strategic way. Um, the, the really interesting place here, too, is when you, when you look into more um, kind of information warfare, um, psychological effects of some of these things, too. Um, I think that we 
we understand um, network operations, we understand having data at our fingertips. Um, I think we think we understand better than we do the effects of when you have things that an adversary might be influencing. And I'll, I'll give you maybe a silly example of, of no, psychological are effects. Good. Um, this will be a silly example. Anybody that hears this in your in your audience will know it's it's a joke, you know. Um, but let's say um, the most effective means that we've seen our adversaries use. Um, someone says something for real at first. So I put out a post: stormtroopers are walking down Clarendon Boulevard, um, you know, just just a mile away from here, and just causing a ruckus in downtown Arlington. So I post that for real. Maybe I post it as a joke, you know, maybe it's Star Wars Day, um, maybe it's Halloween, um, maybe I just made something up and I just wanted to, you know, be silly. Right. But we have adversaries that look at real things that we say and that perpetuate that message. And so all of a sudden, many, many people see stormtroopers are walking down the streets of, of Clarendon. And then maybe someone says, oh my goodness, the stormtroopers are now walking down the streets of Boise. Um, and you and you have this message that started out very, very small that would not have gotten a lot of airtime. And all of a sudden, you can see the traffic going through where bots that did not originate in the United States were perpetuating whatever message they decided to do. And all of a sudden, this message sounds very, very loud. So it's one thing to dismiss something as a human when you heard it once. You can say, oh, that's just crazy ant such and such, or or that's silly, or that was made up. There's no original source from this. But when you start seeing it everywhere, because there was an intentional, there was an intentional uh, push to show it to you that many times. As humans, we start to wonder, well, is that actually true? Because I saw it from so many different sources that I that I think I trust. Um, and that that is real. Um, so um, and, and spectrum warfare increasingly something that we really have to pay attention to. Um, so, um, so definitely a, a hot space. And when we say information warfare um, or informationized warfare or using information for warfare pur uh, purposes, fighting in a digital domain, that means you have to do a lot of things really well to have the information that you need. You have to have connectivity. You have to have compute wherever you need it and networks. You have to be able to get data from anywhere to anywhere. You have to have software that makes it easy for a warfighter to interpret that picture and to make a decision. And really the next step um, is intelligent warfare. And the Chinese are writing about this more and more too. And that's when you take all of that foundation, that tech stack, um, and those conops that you apply to that tech stack in an informationized environment, and you start to leverage AI. And, um, and I'm sure we'll chat about AI today. Um, but, but that next step, once you, once you start leveraging AI to bring all of those things together into a converged battle space, that's when you, when you really get to more of an intelligent warfare environment, which is where we are all trying to drive at the moment. Well, that's fascinating. And as you've been talking, um, I'm reminded of the fact that if you look at our security pillars, uh, that everyone out there in the audience is familiar with, that DIME, you know, we've got diplomacy, we've got information, military and economic pillars. We have cabinet level agencies for three of the four. The one that we don't is information. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, and we don't need to go into all of the, all of the discussion, but you laid out very nicely um, why information is so important and it's becoming a fundamental element, not just the military piece, but how our entire nation security operates. What are your thoughts in terms of needing to take an, an additional organizational level step, if you will, in codifying an organization that focuses full-time on information in the national security environment? So we, we sort of do have that. You know, we have the intelligence community whose whole currency is data and information. We have CIOs um, who deal in information. We have a DOD CIO um, who is there to um, really as a unifying function among our, our milled-up CIOs. Um, we have CISA who is very focused on, on cybersecurity across all the agencies. I think if we stood up a federal agency and said, you're in charge of information, we would probably find a way to screw it up in some way. Um, but I, I do think that there's more that we can do to bet, uh, better, certainly in, in connecting dots and leveraging things that, that already exist. But that's where I see the momentum going. I, I think that we're all aligned that um, we want to move to a world where we can use whatever connection we can get. Um, and we are very close to a world with ubiquitous connectivity where maybe we don't have to 
um, carry around quite as much gear as we used right. to to just get a connection. Um, you know, you have you have all the connections that you used to have. You have more mobile connections. You have more space connections. Um, there are more places where you can connect. We have a pretty solid compute with a number of very, very large companies who also care about national security. And we can leverage what they have built. Um, and then we have more and more um, traditional and non-traditional members of our defense industrial base who are helping us to write software that really does work. Um, and we are building more of these things into our weapon systems. Um, probably one of the most exciting trends that I am seeing is that even when we don't say, I want you to work together, we have our big defense industrial base partners like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, um, SAIC, Lidos. They are partnering with those big commercial companies and they are coming to us with an integrated solution. So instead of what would have happened even 10 years ago, well, we'll build our own network and we'll get our own connectivity and we'll bring in our own circuits and then we'll build the whole stack in this one new place on base and nothing shall connect. Um, industry is getting together and saying, hey, let's make this the standard. We're at the table, but industry is helping to drive it. And that's exactly how it should be. And then also industry is partnering with the cloud providers. Hey, we're just going to do this cloud native. We're going to work together. We're going to do it at the appropriate level of classification all the way up to SAP cloud. And we are going to start here. We're not going to be migrating this in 10 years. Um, and so I see a convergence where people are realizing we do have to work together. There is enough, um, there's enough revenue for us to all make. There is enough mission benefit for us. And we have to do this for our country. Oh, very good. Um, segue into uh, a topic that you mentioned earlier, uh, and that's this whole notion of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Can you talk a bit about how they're going to play a, such a critical role in the future digital environment and how they might shape our operational concepts to come? Absolutely. So I, I'll share a couple things, um, both uh, both philosophically and and actual today. Um, so of course, AI, as we as we talk about it, is a very broad range of topic um, of topics, all the way from you know just basic automations, all the way through um, neural networks, deep learning, um, and uh, and we're doing some very interesting things in in all of those areas of AI right now. Some just in the lab, some on the battlefield, some uh, embedded in things that that we are are building today. Um, we have to automate more. That's kind of a, a first step. Um, if we try to do everything today manually, leveraging the same process that we all are, that we always have, we're not going to have the speed that we need for any of our kill chains. Um, and I'll, I'll give an example for um, humanitarian assistance and disaster recovery, um, because that is that is a mission everybody cares about, um, and it actually is an Air Force mission. I, I don't know how many people know that, um, but we well, are. Well, I hope a lot. <laughs> I happen to be the Joint Force Air Component Commander for Operation Unified Assistance, which was a tsunami relief in the Pacific. All right. In 2005. And that was a huge operation. But anyway, go ahead. So I'm going to start asking you questions then <laughs> um, because because we have an expert at the table. But um, but I think a lot of a lot of people don't necessarily know that we have this um, very humanitarian part of our mission set. And so um, think about either the Coast Guard trying to rescue someone at sea or trying to do a tsunami response or trying to recover after a hurricane. There are so many AI use cases. Um, what do the models say about what the damage will be and where should I put the water and the supplies so that they will be closest to the damage but not get wiped out by the damage? Um, if, I, if I have space imagery and I am trying to look across miles of ocean to find a person who is floating after a shipwreck, how do I tell the difference between person, wave top, trash? Um, how do I zoom in on that huge portion of ocean and help to find out exactly where this person is so that I, I'm not, you know, if I waste an hour, they may drown. Um, and and likewise with, with hurricane response, you know, I can have drones go around. I can see who needs to be rescued and maybe what assets I have nearby to rescue them. Do I need a boat? Do I need a helicopter? Um, being able to optimize that rescue and, okay, can, how long can that person hold on to that tree? How long before that water rises above the roof of that house? Um, those are things that you can have a person calculating that. A person probably has to be in the loop. But that optimization engine, we'd have to have so many people in that war room, and we just generally don't. Um, 
same thing with with some of our missions. So um, one of our early successes with AI was with predictive maintenance for aircraft. Um, and of course, every every aircraft, airplane, uh, airline company uses AI in some way for predictive maintenance. And we are doing more, th more of that. We had a problem with our exit doors. Sometimes the sensor would fail and the door would open, which at a time we did not expect it to open. This is a safety issue. It also causes a lot of problems with drag on the aircraft. It breaks other things. Really bad problem. So A, we were able to fix that. We could see the pattern of it happening, but B, we could predict when that sensor would fail so that we could replace the sensor before it did and avoid all of that, that downstream uh, damage. And so we've been able to actually improve our readiness of our fleet by being mo more proactive in replacing the components most likely to break and to avoid any additional breakage from those things happening at a time that we maybe didn't want them to break. Um, so that, that's been big. We've also been able to use um, more commercially available algorithms for learning. Um, so as part of Digital U, we have an assessment engine where you know you could say, hey, in my next career, when I'm when I'm done doing awesome interviews for the Mitchell Institute um, and, uh, and, and just making our country a safer, better place by uniting um, thinkers, um, you could say, you know what, I want to be a software developer. So we have an engine where you could go and you could say, hey, I want to be a software developer. And it kind of goes through and it'll look at the skills that you have. And, and it might say, actually, we think you'd be a better uh, data scientist. And, and you can say, well, that sounds awesome. How do I get there? And it'll put you on a learning path. Um, or you could say, no, I really do want to be a software developer. And, um, and it'll show you, okay, you know, you have a little bit more work to do here, but but here's your path. And we can see kind of what is your progression along the way. And we can um, do a lot more with data just to, um, to basically um, take raw elements um, that people have that maybe we didn't hire them to be a software developer, um, but maybe they would they have a high probability of succeeding in another field and we want to really give them a shot. Um, I, I like to think of it as the under siege principle. You know, your best fighter is the cook. Um, no one saw it coming. I mean, he was a trained Navy SEAL, so maybe they should have seen it coming. But um, but we have a lot of folks that have incredible skill sets in their personal lives, but we didn't hire them for that thing. And today we need them to do that high-tech job. So we're, we're doing more of that as well. Well, that's fascinating, actually, as you, you brought up the issue of humanitarian response, disaster relief. Um, it is amazing how uh, information technologies have changed since the 2004, 2005 time frame. Heck, we were just trying to get overhead imagery that was releasable to our friends and allies in the region. In the intelligence community, wouldn't declassify the information. Today, you just go to the internet, and uh, you, you know you don't even need a credit card. Uh, if you want really reliable data, you can you, you can pay for it and get it right off the bat. Absolutely, and actually. What you just said, um, some of the drivers behind that have been absolutely fascinating too. Um, declassifying uh, top secret intelligence reports that we never would have declassified before, but that when we declassify them, it shows exactly um, some of the things that our enemies are doing that when the public can see them and when the overseas, when the international public can see them, they see what we do. Um, and I think that in some ways, you know, we have to protect certain things sure. um, because we don't want to give away sources and methods. We don't want right. our sources to be hurt. We don't necessarily want to give up how we collected something. But sometimes when we do share that data, um, it, it helps for people to, to see just how bad things are in some places. And I think that we, we allowed um, some of the worldviews to get a little bit too rosy for a little bit. Um, and I think people see very clearly the world that we live in at the moment um, and that there are real threats that we do have to come together um, for our shared values. Yeah, no, I think you raised an excellent point. Uh, the, the Department of Defense Administration uh, uh, really should be applauded for doing what you just described in the early stages and ongoing in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. And that's made Absolutely. a big difference. In, in solidifying the, the coalition. So um, now kind of taking a look at our adversaries, they're developing their own information-centric strategies uh, and the systems to support them uh, and then to deny ours too. Uh, so from your perspective, um, what are the biggest challenges that we can expect 
to face in this kind of future informationalized war fighting environment? So, I mean, there, there are a lot of challenges. Um, I mean, if you just look in the, in the Department of Defense at the same challenges we've talked about over the last 20 years, um, acquisition reform, IT modernization, the, the incredible scale that we deal with, um, really trying to have all of those pieces come together and get out of our own way. You know, those are the biggest challenges. Um, the, the macro challenges, it's, it's a race. Um, who, can, who can invest smartly and execute really well? Who has the best con ops? Um, who can also operate best on a bad day? We are really good at operating on a bad day. Um, we could actually lose most of our systems. And if our adversary lost their systems too, we would crush anyone. Like we know how to have that lone pilot go and conduct that mission. Um, but this is a new day and age. There, you know, there, there are so many things that come together on the complexity of the battlefield. I do expect information to be front and center um, for any future battles. I think that um, most nations want to avoid um, kind of the, you know, the attrition um, that comes from the kinetic fight um, in favor of a more quiet cyber war. Um, you know, and, um, you know, as the Chinese would say, uh, keeping it harmonious, um, you know. So um, it, it definitely is an interesting environment um, that we live in. Some of the things that we're getting through um, through those challenges by focusing on focusing on the work at hand and getting the engineers in the room to really make some decisions together and to just pick a couple things that we can really, really execute. But um, the other challenge is the real bang, the real game-changing effect doesn't come into play until you have the convergence of a number of different things. Um, and so zero, zero trust in itself, JADC2 in itself, those are big convergence things, convergence concepts. Um, I can roll out enterprise ICAM. A lot of people will be very excited about that because they know what the heck does that mean. But until I have a bunch of other capabilities together that allow me to achieve more of a zero trust future where I can collapse domains, where I can simplify my environment. Um, we were talking earlier offline about um, sometimes you can't get access to something because it was blocked, you know, the link was blocked. Um, in a zero trust future, we avoid some of those problems, but it takes building a couple of things on top of each other. Um, likewise with software, um, you know, we have historically been pretty stovepiped. You could have incredible software in a location, um, but you may not be able to share that data as seamlessly as you would like or with that same common operating picture with someone halfway around the world, unless you have first solved some infrastructure items, um, your, hybrid, your hybrid cloud strategy, um, determined exactly where you're sensoring, sensing and inferencing um, with your, um, you know, with your edge device algorithms versus your, your cloud. Um, so there are a lot of things that come together that kind of make the magic happen. And I think over the next five years, we're gonna see more of those things building on each other to see a little bit more bang. But on the way, you have a lot of folks doing a lot of work that lays that foundation um, that will have smaller effects in things like user experience and cybersecurity um, and governance effects. Um, sometimes we'll be able to maybe shut something down because we're able to do it as an enterprise. But those are all core challenges. And, and I'll tell you the big, um, the big so what is it is a race to see who can who can gain that decision advantage, that cognitive advantage, who can have the fastest literal and proverbial kill chain. And so we have to get it right. We know it. We're investing and we are doing our best to row together. Um, every now and then we're going to have to pull someone out of another boat and be like, all right, come on, guys. Sure. Um, but that is at least we, we recognize it. We're working very hard toward it. No, that's great to hear. And obviously you put your finger on the most important button as we look to the future, because if we are, we, we, we see the rise in the capabilities of our adversaries at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, our um, hardware, if you will, um, has declined. So we're going to have to rely on that decision advantage uh, to be able to uh, overcome our adversaries, which let me segue into a related area, um, and that's the importance of information technology as we go down the road to developing um, 
uh, ABMS in the concept in, in support of joint all domain command and control. Can you share with our audience a little bit about just how important some of the foundational technologies in IT are with respect to getting to that vision? And the other point I wanted to highlight in your remarks, you you, you really, I think, made a good point that, you know, both ABMS and JADC2, you know, there's not a, it's not a day we're going to say, okay, we got it. Um, it's really more of a journey uh, on how we get better in, uh, providing the capabilities to achieve an advantage in that uh, kill chain. But could you talk a little bit more about IT in support of JADC2, ABMS? Sure. So, so I'll say the day that we can really say we have JADC2 is the day we're working out of Ender's game. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'd say that's kind of, you know, we're, we're really reaching, reaching our goals. Um, I would say that um, IT is not just critical to JADC2, but um, I mean, it, just the JADC2 doesn't exist without without all of the you know with all of without all the tech stack. I think largely if you take the tech stack and you add the conops and um, kind of the needs of the warfighter, you've got JADC2 kind of at that point. And so those components, um, you do not have JADC2 without being able to grab a connection, without having compute, without having the data that you need, without having the software that you need. Um, and then, of course, in, as we're moving toward intelligent warfare, if you are not leveraging algorithm, if you are not changing your con ops, if you still have 12 steps in your kill chain and they are still automated or somebody is still doing swivel chair to move data from one system to another, then your adversary's kill chain is going to be faster. And um, so I tend to focus on the tech side of JADC2. We have really smart people that are focused on the CONOP side of JADC2. But we recognize that the CONOPS is both warfighting and technical. What is a warfighting effect that I have to achieve? In what domain? How am I working together? Not just with us, but with our DIB partners and with our allies. Um, and so, so that is huge to recognize. But also, how are we going to leverage that technology and how do we make it as easy as possible? Um, so I'm sure you remember probably using some systems where you had to go through three years of training to understand how to use the system. Um, we, we don't want our system to be quite that complex in the future. And we have gotten to a point where you can show up and, and be you know, proficient a lot sooner if you have basic data skills, if you can use an iPhone. Um, you don't go through a month of training to use your iPhone. Right. Um, and so that, that user-centered design piece, you know, it also sounds super fluffy, but it means that when you show up and you need to put in place that warfighting effect, that you're not trying to figure out a complex system to do it. You have the data at your fingertips. You can make the decisions that you need to, that your kill chain, once you make a decision, it's going to be relatively automated and be able to carry out exactly what you expect it to carry out. All right. Now, I think, uh, again, you hit on some great points in the context. It, it's not just about technology either. It's about, you know, um, human design, the, the entire panoply of .mil, PF, FT, whatever the latest, you know, acronym on the, or, or letter on top of that acronym is. Um, but it's going to be all those parts and pieces. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. And you, you mentioned zero trust before. Can you tell us a little bit more about your vision for, vision for Zero Trust and why it's important? And when do you expect to have a working system up and running uh, that'll allow for a constant validation by system users? Absolutely. So, um, so first, the reason that Zero Trust is so incredibly important in a warfighting construct is that we want to get it to a world where we can fight in one environment with our joint partners, our DIB partners, and our allies. We don't want to be logging into 22 different networks to try to talk to 22 different people. We can't be in an AOC with people having different access to different things and having to log into different machines and redact documents and run up and down stairs. Um, that is that is not uh, the speed of kill chain that we are going to that this is going to help us win, um, and so zero trust is a core principle of getting to that future world where we can fight together with our joint partners and our allies, um, because zero trust inherently um, looks at the identity of the person who are you or the non-person entity, um, and constantly challenges that person. Also looks at the data. Should you have access to this piece of data? What about this piece of data? Um, and are you allowed to have access to this piece of data perpetually or just for this moment in time? Um, if I know something about you and I know something about the data and I have an automated way to validate that, 
then I can I can sit there all day and I can make sure that that you are supposed to have that. I don't have to do whitelisting. I don't have to um, block certain things and allow certain things. I equally distrust everything, but I can very easily validate um, what is happening. And so what I can start to do is maybe I don't need an unclassified environment and a secret environment. Maybe I have one environment where things are segmented enough where I can just see what I can see. Um, I don't have to worry about logging into two different places. My partners in that AOC, we're all there fighting together. I don't necessarily have to stand up a separate network so I control it so that I can share everything that I need with my allies there because that just means that at that point in time I'm set. I need to be able to set up an environment so I can now share that with if we have to disperse and work from you know, wherever we have to work from or if we have to disperse globally. I still need to be able to share that information. If I need to bring in new allies in a conflict, I need to be able to share all the information that I can share and it needs to be very easy. Um, you know, I can change rules within a system easily, but if I have to go through and manually make changes to the eaches, I'm not going to get there. So for, for a lot of that reason, zero trust, we recognize, is one of the most dear capabilities to the future fight. Not because it's, you know, cool tech. It is cool tech. Um, but because it allows us to simplify our environment and it makes us inherently more secure. Um, and I'll tell you just in general with, uh, with zero trust, uh, kind of the analogy that I use, um, it's a little bit annoying, uh, but with automation would not be. So the way that we do things now, we're, you know, we're kind of like a traditional movie theater. You show your ticket. And as long as I see your ticket, you can go on in. I might not know if it's a forged ticket. Maybe you snuck in behind someone else. You know, it's not, maybe you snuck in a back door when someone opens it up. But once you're in the theater, I kind of leave you alone. You can just kind of, you know, you can go see four movies that day if you feel like it. Um, but with zero trust, I'm checking your ticket when you come into the theater. As you're walking around, I'm still saying, hey, can I see your ticket? I'm validating if that ticket is real. I'm using a barcode. Did someone else use that ticket? I'm constantly looking at it. Oh, you know, that movie was over an hour ago. You shouldn't still be here. While you're sitting in your seat, I'm still saying, oh, is this your ticket? Is this your ticket? Is this your ticket? But I'm not interrupting your movie in zero trust because I have automation happening behind the scenes. You don't see it. It is seamless to you. But I know that you were there before because you were supposed to be, but it's because I inherently don't trust you. It's because I'm constantly asking. Um, if we do that with every piece of data across our enterprise, it's pretty hard to maintain perpetual access across our networks. Now, it is very, very hard to do this. Um, it took Google about 10 years um, with their uh, zero trust effort. Of course, they were the first uh, pioneering um, zero trust. But we have a pretty good plan. Um, we released our strategy about a year ago. Uh, DOD just released their strategy, which we support. Um, our implementation plans are converging. And we're actually making decisions together across the entire DOD on zero trust. Um, and, uh, you know, imagine, imagine a world, you know, 10 years ago, people would have laughed when I said, you know, the CIOs of the departments and the director of DISA, who's also a, you know, a great Air Force general, um, General Skinner over there, um, we all agree largely on how we're going to do ICAM and we're going to do it together. We all largely agree on how we're going to go about doing SD-WAN and we are going to do this together. Um, just agreeing on the tech and be, and deciding to be an enterprise and making sure that we are as aligned as possible, leveraging our defense base, traditional and non-traditional again, um, to go after this. It all is um, a pretty cool time to be in a tech exec job in the department. Uh, that's great. You actually anticipated my next question, which was going to be how you work with the rest of the Department of Defense, but you answered that. Let me ask one point. Let's take it one more stage in the context of um, what about wider whole of government and international partner uh, efforts and effects? So, um, I mean, we work with our international partners every single day, especially overseas. Um, and depending on the region we're in, depending on the conflict we're in, um, you know, that, that may look differently. I mean, we're, we're working a lot with our European allies right now. We're working more, of course, with Ukraine than we ever have before. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and we're doing some, some pretty interesting things. Um, and, you know, I guess necessity drives invention. Um, we, we've actually uh, been able to share information pretty much more seamlessly with our European allies um, because of the conflict. Um, 
I think that there's definitely opportunity for us to co-develop more technology. Um, and our, our allies, um, especially our Five Eyes partners, have some pretty interesting um, zero trust efforts of their own that allow us to also share information uh, pretty seamlessly, as well as partnerships with, um, with the NSA, the, the intelligence community in general, um, with those allies. Um, so I think that our partnerships are strong which is good because that's part of our national defense right. strategy is to have those strong allied relationships. Um, I think we're using integrated deterrence very effectively um, across the world right now as well. Um, and that that is a, you know, a good news story. But um, I think certainly as we get the information domain right and as we simplify things and we are able to leverage zero trust principles, those partnerships get even easier. Um, because again, even as, as tight as those partnerships are, we're still working on multiple networks until we're able to simplify that domain. Yeah, and I don't want to get too um, technical or detailed here, uh, but could you talk a little bit about, you mentioned Five Eyes. Okay, great. We've got established relationships with Five Eyes. Um, but how is Zero Trust going to enable information sharing with partners and others that don't normally have regular access to our classified information? You so, kind of alluded to that yeah. and with respect to, okay, we're working a lot with Ukraine. Well, they didn't use to, they're certainly not one of the Five Eye partners. Yeah. But can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, I mean, we don't just share with Five Eyes. We share with a lot of different countries around the world. I don't think that we always necessarily say publicly who all of, who sure. all of the folks are. Um, but we can release to anyone that we're approved to release to. And we work with a lot of countries around the world. Um, and so... You know, pick a country if it's if it's um, classified as secret releasable to that country, it can go. That can be a zero trust rule. Um, and we have systems even in place today, even commercially available systems where um, you can see um, either that report or parts of that report if you have access to it. And if you don't have access to it, then it just it, you know it doesn't exist in your in your workspace. Um, so it, it's not just Five Eyes. Of course, we have very long-standing tight knit relationships and mature processes with Five Eyes. But we also have very mature, um, strong relationships with a lot of other allies. And I was really thrilled to get to see some of that firsthand um, with my Asia trip in September and October, just how strong some of our allied relationships are in that region as well. Well, very good. Let's take a look at uh, some acquisition perspectives, if you will. Um, we do hear a lot about the Department of Defense and the Air Force wanting to bring in non-traditional vendors. Um, but when we talk to many of these companies, we see two primary barriers for disincentives to doing business with the Department of Defense and the Air Force. Um, classification requirements and then the extended timelines of defense acquisition. How is your office dealing with these challenges? So first I'll, I'll share that, you know, we talk about traditional and non-traditional um, but but it's kind of hilarious in a way because we'll be like, oh, Google, they're a non-traditional company. Microsoft and Amazon, they are a non-traditional company. Everywhere else, they are a household name. Right. And if we're being honest, they're they are now household names in the Department of Defense. A lot of those big those big tech companies that used to be non-traditional, they are now working very, very closely with our more traditional defense industrial base. And then we have other players that are kind of up and coming that started out smaller, were venture backed, but they are focused on defense. Companies like Andrel, Rebellion Defense. Um, Palantir, of course, grew up out of the intelligence community, but you know they, they are increasingly doing just some really great work for, for the Department of Defense. So these companies are sort of non-traditional, they're right in the middle of it, and they're developing capability for us, um, as well as, um, of course, in the case of the big tech companies, dual use. There are small companies that stand up just to do work for the government, um, and then there are small companies that are that are dual use. For the dual use companies, um, I tend to advise folks to start on the commercial market because it is faster. You can test your concept. If it's really, really great in the commercial market, the government's probably going to want to use it too. The government's not a great place to just test it and see if it worked unless you are unless you know that's exactly what you're doing. We're actually awesome for phase one cibers, for instance, where I have no idea if it's going to work. I have no idea if there's even a commercial market. 
but I want to test this capability and see what happens. And we actually spend about a billion dollars a year on our cyber program. So, and, and the bar to entry is pretty low. Like if we have a need and we think that you might be able to um, even look at early stage technology that might be uh, valuable to our mission, we have a lot of folks that come in. But it is hard to, um, not as many companies uh, kind of get through that valley of death and really end up operational, sometimes intentionally. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't as big of a hit to our mission as we thought. Sometimes it does need to go prove itself commercially first. But we do have AFWorks as that front door. We have lowered the bar for SIBR. It is much more of a venture model where you can get that initial investment, you can scale it up to a two, up to a three. Um, and you know, once you get a SIBR, you actually uh, can get a sole source contract from the government if your technology is something that we need or if your concept, um, whatever it is that you developed as, as part of that SIBR. Um, so that's pretty cool. And we actually give some, um, some good resources to those companies. Um, our CISO shop actually does something called Blue Cyber, um, where they educate those companies on the security requirements for the government so that it's a little bit easier to um, kind of build in the cyber and privacy um, requirements that we have so that that doesn't kind of cause kinks later down the road. Um, partnering is a huge thing too. I, I see a lot more of our big companies partnering, especially with disadvantaged small businesses and mentoring those companies and bringing them into big bids because a small company you know, isn't going to be able to spend the hundreds of thousands right. of dollars to put in a huge bid but they could do smaller bids. And we have a lot of procurements that go through that are just for small businesses, just for 8As. Um, and then of course, um, we have a lot of subcontent built into our large deals where a small company that has something that really adds to the fight can talk to the primes and be part of the team. And so I think we do have mechanisms, um, like in any business, a small business in the DOD, you got to hustle, you got to network, you have to have something that, that other people don't have. And just like the commercial markets, it is really, really hard. Um, but, um, but I think we have some, some pretty good mechanisms in place and some good education for the folks that are really hungry to go get it. Awesome. And well, this has been a fascinating discussion so far, and it's not over with yet, but what I'd like to do is uh, open up the session to questions from our audience. Um, and I know our audience knows the drill by now, but uh, when I do call on you, uh, please unmute your mic and then uh, state your name and affiliation uh, before asking your question. Um, or you can submit your questions uh, using the Q&A function uh, on the app. Um, so with that, let's jump right in. Uh, let me take a quick look here and see if we've got any um, live hands up. <clears throat> Seeing none, let's go to the chat and uh, have a uh, first question here from uh, Sarah Brame. Uh, your example about stormtroopers in Clarendon highlights the dangers of disinformation. How may the Air Force better manage uh, or combat disinformation? Training, awareness, policy, what do you think? So I'm so glad that I got a question about stormtroopers in Arlington. Um, I cannot wait for the Twitter hashtags later today. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see if stormtrooper costume sales go up, you know, from this interview. Um, but we, we actually are pretty aware of this and um, have launched an education campaign for our airmen. Um, it, I guess a simple way to put it is kind of how to be safe online. And honestly, like I have two little kids. I'm so glad that they're not surfing the Internet by themselves yet. But as they do, um, you know, definitely I will be educating them more. Um, I was at a fascinating dinner party the other night um, where the host asked us a question, um, what is something that's not obvious that you are optimistic about? And one of the folks mentioned that kids that are growing up right now have a really good BS meter. And specifically what he meant by that was that kids, because they are used to seeing so many ridiculous sources online, um, the kids that grew up in this age are getting better at saying, that's not real. Of course, there are not stormtroopers going through Clarendon. And if they are, it's a parade at Star Wars Day. Like, this is not something I need to be worried about. Um, whereas folks that grew up with the internet as more of a source of truth, um, where uh, journalists really, really dove, dove into their sources and took it as a sense of pride and where we didn't have a world where you were paid by the click. Um, our young people are getting it um, kind of through inherent training. Our young airmen, we we're trying to make sure that we train them and also our, our folks that um, 
you know, our more mature audiences, just how do you, how do you really look at the source and tell if this is true um, and just be aware of it. So, so we, we have looked at that. Um, we also, um, I, I think that our government is also talking a little bit more in general, not just in the DOD about how do we protect our, our public from disinformation. How about uh, Eric Adolfi? Hello, can you hear me? Yep, We've got you. Gotcha. Alexa, this has been great. And uh, I was very, very encouraged to hear about the, uh, the, the emphasis on cybers. We're a cyber company. Uh, we hold a number of cybers related to zero trust uh, devices, working with partners at NSA and also Air Force. Our challenge is that um, even though we, you know, we were phase one and phase two, um, when we do go to speak with, uh, you know, partners within the Air Force about potentially integrating into their, you know, ecosystems, um, they uh, really don't understand the, the CIPRA program. And we, you know, we get a lot of, uh, I don't want to say pushback, but we get a lot of sort of like, hey, you need to go talk to AFWorks. And we try to explain this is a phase three opportunity, and they don't quite understand what that means. And so we've been We've been struggling with that. And uh, so, um, and then a lot of times the, the contracting officers won't speak to us and we try to explain, you know, we give them the, the policy directives and, you know, and they just don't um, think that they can speak with us as, uh, as vendors. How do you, how would you suggest we go about, you know, educating the community about how do you go about doing this? Yeah, so, um... That's definitely something, um, you know, I can put you in touch with um, Colonel Diller over at FWorks to to raise that as a concern. Um, certainly, we could educate folks more um, if you're if you're kind of running into to challenges there. Um, not everyone knows that, hey, once you have a cyber phase two, that, you know, we can pretty much just sole source you a, a cyber phase three. Um, but the broader challenge there is sometimes if you are experimenting with a piece of a technology while the enterprise is rapidly trying to scale that technology, you're almost behind the curve. Um, and um, so so I think that is probably the broader problem here is taking a look at the zero trust strategy, where do you fit in, um, maybe working with the existing vendors that are on contract to do different parts of the um, of the stack. And if you think that there is a part that is missing in the stack that you fill specifically, um, helping to educate the engineers on what exactly that is. And, and that is something that can happen um, in our CTO office. That's something that can happen in our lead command or in our PR, PEO that is integrating this. Um, but it, it may very well be that, um, you know, just we have something that is not temporarily aligned. Um, and that is a big challenge, actually, it, everywhere, not just in the DoD. You have things in the lab that um, are, are developing great capability Meanwhile, the enterprise is adopting um, mature technologies at scale, and you have to find um, kind of where the insertion point is after the plane's already taken off at that point. Um, but we can we can connect you to, uh, to Colonel Diller, um, or if you want to send me a brief on the tech, if I see um, a gap in our current strategy that you could fill, um, then I'm happy to to make some connections there. Um, I'll also be very open that we may not be ready to fill that gap at this point. Um, we may need to kind of get some foundational pieces in order, or we may have that piece filled. Um, and that's just that's just one of those things um, in an enterprise of this size, where um, if you don't fill a gap today, it may be that maybe we need to develop the technology a little bit more. Um, so that we can kind of catch a gap tomorrow when the enterprise is ready to catch you. So timing is really, really important. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Lauren, here's one from uh, Mitchell Institute follower at uh, Arizona State University. Uh, back in August, you couldn't reveal specifics on budget numbers, but you said if things go as expected with the president's budget in the palm, there should be a windfall for the department's IT particularly in FY24. Can you say any more at this point, and are you still as confident? I'll say I'm even more confident, um, but I still can't share numbers um, until it's in the president's budget. Um, but um, yes, we the POM uh, took cyber IT and COM 
very, very seriously. Um, and we continue to have um, additional iterations that uh, continue to fill gaps as we do move toward this zero trust world um, and as we do lay the foundation for JADC2. So I would say that our country is taking investment in this technology very seriously right now. Um, I remain confident and I have a lot of folks working really, really hard to make sure that the day that those dollars drop, we are spending it very smartly. Here's one from uh, Zach Rosenberg at uh, Jane's. Um, can you kindly elaborate on AI incorporation into air platforms? You mentioned AI for search and rescue as an example. Are we there yet? Um, where is the Air Force, the US on integrating AI into specific operational tasks? What are the challenges? What do we still need to accomplish? And what timeline should we anticipate to seeing AI commonplace in the real world? That's a lot of questions, but I yeah. think you get the gist. Well, I'd say AI is commonplace in the real world now. Um, it's just not commonplace in the real world everywhere in the Department of Defense. Um, and part of that is because um, it's a lot easier to do AI at scale when you're already in the cloud. You already have really clean training quality data that you've been collecting across a large populace legally for decades. Um, but within the Department of Defense, I, I think about it two ways. Um, one, our secretary has, has said a few times that in the future, we expect AI to just be a part of all of our weapons platforms. Um, and so that is, um, that is definitely notable in that um, as we build out capabilities of the future, it will be, it'll be in the statement of work um, that we have this capability. Um, as, far as, um, as far as battle management software, um, it, we, we use algorithms today to do certain things. We will, do, we will use algorithms to do more things. We will have better data um, and more training quality data to do those things. Um, we are already um, pretty well on our way uh, with uh, computer vision, um, being able to look at imagery and tell um, what is that thing? Is that, a, is that a truck? Is that a tank? Is that a missile? Is it moving? Uh, is it stationary? Um, maybe what is the pattern? Um, there are a lot of things that we can already do. Um, I would say over time, as we get our infrastructure house in order, as we have more things in a cloud-based architecture, and as we adopt concepts such as ICAM and SD-WAN, which will be happening over the next two years at scale, um, it becomes a lot easier to get data from anywhere to anywhere. It gets a lot easier to have a more cohesive AI strategy um, much more like, um, for instance, I, I drive a Tesla. I'm a huge fan. And uh, generally, I'll explain uh, kind of training of a fleet of algorithms like I would explain my car, where you do train the, the fleet in the cloud. Um, you have a lot of data in the cloud from uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of different um, endpoints in this place, a car. But everything that I need at the edge is on the car. Um, so if there's something that's going to save my life in an accident, it's not waiting for a connection. It acts. It's going to it's going to take the action that it needs to. Um, the airbag is going to deploy. Um, maybe the um, the auto drive will make an adjustment for me to save my life. Um, but that next pothole, um, you know, I, I'm going to get the latest intelligence when I get when I get a connection. Um, and I, I think that. We know that that's the right architecture, but globally distributed in our security environment to this point has been harder to train algorithms in the cloud and push them to the edge exactly when we need them. And so, and we, and we haven't embedded AI into our 20 year old air platforms consistently. Some of them we have. Um, and so, uh, so I'd say that we are on the right path. Um, we still have some work to do both in the lab and on the battlefield, but I'm really excited uh, to see uh, some of the developments in some of the the newer defense industrial base companies, uh, like Andrel, for instance, um, everything they do starts from a point of of autonomous systems. Um, more of our software starts from a point of there is going to be an algorithm handling that. Um, so I think we're on the right path, and I think that we're going to see in about five years we're going to see a convergence of some really interesting things happening at scale. Okay, um, let's go back to live questions. Uh, we've got one from Donna Rogers. Donna. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the very insightful comments that you've had so far. Um, 
it's been very interesting to hear what you've been saying about the AI. And actually, my question had to do with uh, the future of the AI and um, how that would be integrated. So you actually answered it. So I'll, I'll <laughs> pass on that. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. We'll pat ourselves on the back here in the studio. <laughs> okay, here's, a, I'm going to combine a couple. Um, one from uh, Mr. Doug Berkey at Mitchell Institute and Lauren uh, Williams. We hear a lot about the Space Force uh, via Derek Tournier's team building the space transport layer to facilitate JADC2. This obviously needs to connect with our terrestrial networks and IT systems. Could you please speak to the type of collaboration you and his team are pursuing to ensure seamless connectivity and resilience and sort of the, the other pieces also, how are you working um, with uh, Brigadier General Cropsey, the program executive officer for management on JADC2? Absolutely, so first, um, so Derek is brilliant, doing really great things to our force and uh, Luke Cropsey is exactly the, the right person to be doing the integration PEO. Um, so Luke is easy, uh, General Cropsey, um, in that, uh, so he is the integration PEO. And so um, the things that I dream up in strategy and requirements and the things that um, General Highnote, our, our A57Q Highnote, the things that we dream up and the, and the warfighter requirements that come, um, General Cropsey is responsible for executing those requirements. And um, so we work together in, in making sure that uh, our roadmaps are integrated and that uh, we're not solving the same problem multiple times, or when we are, that we find the convergence as quickly as we possibly can, uh, the convergence in terms of effect as well as funding. Um, and then with, uh, with Derek, uh, Dr. Turneau, um, what I would say is that in the future, we don't care what connectivity we have. We don't care what transport we have. We will take any transport and we will use it. And so space transport is just one more type of transport that we will increasingly use uh, toward mission effect. Um, space compute as well. Um, so in that future zero trust world where we don't care, um, Derek basically makes sure that, that that transport is available to us. Some other folks are making sure that space transport is available to us, um, just like we have fiber and mobile um, and uh, Wi-Fi uh, coverage, uh, cellular coverage, um, 5G, LTE, whatever we can grab. Um, same thing for our aerial networks. Um, we're converging more around IP standards uh, in our aerial networks. We're not there yet, um, but that's where we're headed. And so um, once we are able to adopt things like true SD-WAN technology, we care even less what our transport is, um, especially if we are able to protect that data in transport across whatever transport mesh we're on. Um, that, that is how those things integrate when we kind of break it down to its pieces. Okay, we're coming up to the end of our session. However, this is a really interesting question here. It's from Nathan uh, at the John F. Kennedy Elementary School. So <laughs> automatically I'm suspicious with respect to your analogy to stormtroopers and Clarendon, but still it's a cool question. Here's his question. No matter how cool our computers are, we still use dumb keyboards. My teacher says keyboards go way back 200 years. Will you invent easier ways to work on a computer? <laughs> Aim high. Oh, I love it. Um, we could actually still make some improvements to our actual computers today. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll say that, um, what we do need is some way for humans to interact with data, which is a very, uh, non-tangible thing, but we have to be able to touch it in a tangible way because we're humans and we have to manipulate a physical, a physical world. Um, keyboards are one way. Um, but you know, hey, Minority Report shows us uh, some some pretty good um, examples of what the future could be um, with regard to ARVR. And um, actually, we're doing some pretty cool stuff across the Department of the Air Force with ARVR, with our with our maintainers, um, and with our pilots. Um, and ARVR, in some cases, it's gotten so good that um, you really can feel like you were there and experiencing something. And so I think that there will be increasing use cases where we are using AR and VR and where we are moving something throughout a battle space, for instance. Um, keyboards are really great for um, 
kind of the, the tactical feel of conveying uh, words to digital paper. Although it's funny, I was talking with some, some of my friends the other day um, about how when I write something in a notebook, I actually remember it more than if I type it onto a piece of paper. Um, and maybe that's just because that's where I started in school. Um, I wonder if kids that are starting typing everything, um, will they remember more when they type it? Um, people that start more in an AR, VR world where they are um, kind of in, a, in a, a simulated environment, tactically moving the world around them, even though they're not really, but they feel that they are. Are they going to remember that um, kind of more kinesthetic learning in, in an AR, VR space? Um, so it's definitely a fascinating look. I think we have options, um, but uh, I think for the next few years, we'll be uh, doing our, our business, uh, our day-to-day -day business and numbers probably with keywords and our uh, battle space and training increasingly with ARVR. Well, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we've uh, come to the end of our Aerospace Nation event today. Um, I really want to thank uh, Lauren, you for taking the time for being here today and, and giving us those uh, great uh, perspectives. We wish you all the best in your endeavors. And to you and our audience, we wish you all having a great aerospace power kind of day.